Isaiah 52, I pick up where Craig left off this morning. He started in 50 verse 4, and I'll pick up in 52 verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise, be seated, O Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore what I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised, therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know it is I who speak, here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. Amen. The phrase call and response makes it sound pretty easy, doesn't it? The words are spoken and the response is generated. Several of you kids are racing track this year, and if you want to succeed, there can't be much delay between the call, the starting gun, and the response when you get moving. But outside of sports, we know that's not really how it works, don't we? There's a call, and then some other stuff, and then maybe a response. Exercise healthier eating, chores around the house, quality time with our children, practicing the instrument or the second language. We know what we should do. The call has gone out. We hear it, but the response is a bit delayed. That's how it will be when it comes to trusting God as well. There will be a gap between call and response. That is, at least until the steps in between those two become, by grace, second nature. Call and response can always be the shorthand, but for that to work, what must happen in between is that we listen and believe. Call, listen, believe, respond. When we delay... 
or outright fail to respond to God in in obedience, it's either because we aren't listening or we aren't believing. And when it comes to our own voices, we have no such problem, do we? We listen and believe to ourselves without a whole lot of effort or training. How we respond when we listen to ourselves doesn't typically go well. We go our way rather than God's. But that doesn't seem to stop us much. A pastor I read this week wondered how much of our misery stems simply from our devotion to our own thoughts and feelings above all else. He writes, we spend every moment of our lives within a mental universe, and the quality of that environment matters. Is the quality most influenced by our own thoughts and feelings, or do we understand what it means to listen to God. Judah's remnant is feeling down, way down, despair down. The environment of their mental universe is being established by their own thoughts and feelings about their circumstances. Think of it like building a shelter from the weather. God's promises build a shelter that gives us a comfortable and safe place no matter what kind of storm is going on outside. But we usually choose to build the shelter of our own thoughts and feelings instead. It's a bit less structurally sound, perhaps a bit leaky and a bit drafty. It's not really safe because in the end, it's going to come crashing down. But we build our shelter nonetheless. That's the environment of our mental universe. That's what we saw, incidentally, in Ecclesiastes from Solomon. It's what we're seeing in our Sunday school study of Job. When our thoughts and feelings drown out God's word, The mental universe we inhabit is one of anger or hopelessness. They can never long be anything else. Now, God's people in Judah would say they have very good reason to feel this way. They've been taken into captivity in Babylon. The temple is destroyed. Jerusalem, a distant memory. And they've tried to settle into life in captivity. They've tried to start over. And then Cyrus ascends to power, and now he wants to send them back, back to Judah, back to Jerusalem, and to the hard work of rebuilding the temple. Many of them don't want to go. They've started new lives in Babylon. This is home. For anyone who returns, it's going to be a long, hard journey, followed by a lot of hard work. There will be opposition, even with Cyrus' support. He cannot guarantee that this will be worth it to them in the end. And so they're discouraged. And so some are grumbling. And some are hopeless. What needs to happen for their spirits to be lifted? What needs to happen for God's people to do what he's calling them to do? return to Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple. 
Well, we can answer that by working it out in reverse. To be encouraged, they need to enjoy life with God. For life with God, they need to respond to God in obedience. And to respond in obedience, they must believe what he says. And to believe, they must listen. That's why Isaiah says the feet of the one who brings the good news are beautiful. It's the first step, the call in a series of events that leads to blessing. They're too much in their own heads, though. They're drowning out God's word with their own thoughts and feelings. Can you relate? Some of us are very aware that we listen to our voice in our head too much. (laughs) But other of us, the less introspective types, are probably doing the same thing. Our belief, just our unbelief, really, just comes across as confidence rather than insecurity. But many of us, in many times, are letting our voices, our thoughts and feelings, play more loudly in our heads than God's promises. Judah's failure to listen and believe is what's leading them away from life with God. And what Isaiah wants them to do, I imagine him standing over at the mixing board, adjusting the inputs. He wants to remix the volume in their minds so that God's promises are louder and their thoughts and feelings are turned down. Sounds easy enough, but here's the thing. They can't even do that on their own. And that's why this text isn't first about them. It's about the servant, the one who can. He's the one who will first do what they cannot do. And then by his doing, he shows them how and empowers them to respond to God's call in their own lives. That's the third servant song of Isaiah. If you look, this is chapter 50, look at verses 4 and 5 and 7 and 9. You see repeated a name for God, Lord God, Yahweh Adonai in Hebrew. The combined name emphasizes both God's sovereign power, that he is the Lord to whom is owed absolute obedience and faithfulness. Yahweh, I am am, the I am who will keep his covenant promises. Judah needs to listen to God when he reminds them that he is the Lord and that everything that comes to pass, including captivity in Babylon, including Cyrus's rise to power, everything that comes to pass is at God's initiative. And they need to listen and remember that he is Yahweh. Everything that comes to pass is his faithfulness to his promises. And then listening to that and believing that, they should respond with faithfulness to God. But I trust by now you get how Isaiah and all the prophets work. The people didn't do it. They didn't listen, believe, or respond in obedience. But even that, will not stop God from redeeming the people of his covenant. They can't do it on their own. So God will send the servant. The emphasis in this third servant song 
is on the son's total submission to the father. I suspect that some of the things Jesus had to do in the incarnation, we dismiss as easy for him because we're thinking about his divinity. But this servant song teaches us that those were actually hard won through the obedience of his humanity. When it comes to learning God's word and will, don't you just sometimes assume that, well, he's God. He would have just been born with a mind full of God's word and will. It's easy. But look, that's not what Isaiah says. Isaiah says he had to submit his mind to the Father so that he could learn these things. He had to make himself one who was taught. He had to study and memorize, to, to listen to and learn the scriptures just as we do. And then to learn how to use those scriptures to build up the weak and the weary and to tear down the forces of evil. He learned this by submitting his mind to God. That's how his obedience worked as well. He came to do his father's will. He listened in prayer for that will. He believed that God as sovereign was right to purpose all that he planned. And so even when in his weakness, he prayed for the cup to pass him by, he always submitted his own will to that of the father. He listened, believed, and responded in obedience. And for the servant, as is stated plainly here, that meant suffering. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Christ chose this pain. And he chose it because of his obedience to the Father. His ears were open. He heard. His mind was teachable. He believed. And his heart was willing. He obeyed. Verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I've set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Jesus didn't accomplish this. By use of his divine power. He did this the same way you and I can do it. By faith. He did it by listening to God's call, believing what God says, and responding in obedience. Following God faithfully is hard for us, even in the good times. In those times, we tend to forget our need of God. And it takes growth by grace to be faithful in times of plenty. And as we've seen in Job, it's only by more or different growth for, that we're able to trust him in the darkest times. Judah, like Job, like us, just wants adversity to go away. But God wanted Judah, like Job, like us, to be more like Christ. We all want to turn and run away from hardship. 
God calls us to turn to him, even if, as with Jesus, it means turning toward the hardship as well. Another teacher suggests that when we turn away from God's ordained hardship, we're rebelling against God and diminishing our capacity to breathe life into others. Instead, the servant shows us the way. He was not rebellious, he says. He did not turn away from God or from the hard call that God had placed upon him. And through that obedience, he gave life to many. Kids, a man I know compared this part of the Christian life to some of his really early morning deer hunts. He said that sometimes you get into the woods so early, it's just completely dark, so dark that it's disorienting. And he said there have been times where he finally just had to wait, and all you could do was simply wait for the sunrise. And he saw in that a good picture of the life of Christian faith, that we sometimes live in in darkness, in, in perplexity, where there doesn't seem to be any way out. And the presence of that darkness, it doesn't mean we're not obeying God. In fact, we might be in the darkness because we're obeying God. That's where the servant was. But here's the great truth. Faith offsets darkness. In many ways, darkness is what faith is for, for it's in the darkness that we really trust in the name of God. Of the Lord. Judah was struggling with the darkness because of her suffering. We read about Solomon in Ecclesiastes who wasn't suffering physically, but still felt things were dark because he couldn't control the world around him. Job had both physical and emotional suffering that led him to conclude that the orderly world he wanted was better than the world God had made. For all of them, things felt dark. Sometimes in that darkness, we try to make our own light by which we can see. That was some of the language there in chapter 50, um, Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. Can't you relate to that? You can't make sense of the world around you. You turn down the volume on God in the mixer, up the volume on your thoughts and your feelings. You light your own torch and you say, I'll make sense of this myself. It won't work. Our light, the thoughts and feelings that drown out the word of God, they cannot last and they cannot lead us to life. But God keeps his promises. How did the gospel of John begin? God sent his light into the world. That's this servant, Jesus. The one who listened where we had closed our ears. Who believed when we were faithless. Who was obedient when we insisted on going our own way. And now here Isaiah says there are two results. One, hear this, one, it is finished. He did for you what you cannot do. He kept the covenant you could not keep and he earned the reward you did not deserve. It is finished. Stop trying to earn it yourself. The servant 
has done it. And he showed us the way and enabled us to follow in that light. So that now, not for our own salvation, but for our own well-being and life with God, whether we're in times of plenty and rejoicing or times of darkness that we cannot understand, we can listen, believe, and respond in obedience. We can now do the thing we could not do before Christ. That's chapter 50. It's filled with vivid descriptions of how God will save his people through his servant. And he reminds them, you know, God had done this before on a small scale with Abraham and Sarah. Small? Their descendants were as numerous as the stars. God had done this before on a small scale by freeing his people from Egypt. Small? He used a series of miracles. He parted the sea to deliver an enslaved people from the mightiest empire on earth. The people called out to God and he acted. He saved them. He comforted them in the darkness. He was faithful to his promises. He showed them that nothing had happened by accident, that all even the darkness was part of his eternal plan to save his people. Babylon had taken them into captivity, forcing them to drink of the bitter cup. But God appointed this cup to wake them from their disobedient slumber. And God would also take the cup away. They deserved everlasting judgment, but God would take it away and pour it out on another. Here, Babylon. There, Christ And so chapter 1 has a lot of admonitions for us, descriptions of what it means to respond in obedience. But you miss the whole thing if you don't first understand chapter 50. That the admonitions, what God calls us to do, comes after the work that God has already done in his servant. Given ears to hear. By grace, given hearts of flesh by grace, given the righteousness of Christ by grace, now we can listen, believe, and obey. We can do what the Savior has already done on our behalf. And so you see a lot of connection between the language in chapter 50 and the admonitions oriented toward those with ears to hear in chapter 51. Verse 1, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. See, in chapter 50, Judah had prayed, as we sometimes pray, as if God were the one who's sleeping. Wake up, God. Do something about this. But once we have ears to hear what God has said, we realize we're the ones who need to wake up. Awake, Christian, put on your strength. Then comes this, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Have you ever felt small, insignificant, worthless? a failure how about dirty corrupted unclean and unworthy 
What about trapped in bondage? The remnant of Judah felt all of those things. And God promises to deliver them. He offers words of comfort that he has always been able to take the weakness of this world and make it mighty in his strength. He specializes in making the unclean clean and the unworthy worthy. He loves to deliver the captives who turn to him in faith. Another, verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there. Judah's obedient response to God's call should be to leave Babylon to return to Jerusalem, not in fear, he says, not in weakness, but in strength, for the Lord will go before you. Following God in obedience means leaving the world behind, not in, moral, not in social isolation, but in moral holiness. Their loves cannot be our loves. The world's priorities cannot be our priorities. We are careful to do things differently because God's call is be holy as I am holy. And when we do things because God has called us to them, the world makes us feel weak, foolish, like outcasts, like those who don't belong like those who have no hope. To leave Babylon took courage that Judah could not muster in her own strength. Responding in obedience requires trust in God, and trust requires listening to and believing what he has said. Another teacher writes that true courage comes not from our own bravado, but from the promises of of God. If we have to fend for ourselves, however strong we may be, we are doomed. But if God is watching over us, we can face anything. It doesn't matter if the world tells me that I'm foolish. It doesn't matter if the world tells me that I'm weak or the world tells me that I don't belong and I have no future. I have to turn that dial down and turn up the promises of God. Listen and believe to what he said. This is as true for the church, our corporate life together, as it is individually. Faithful gospel ministry isn't easy. It will have dark times. But God promised that the gates of hell would not withstand the expansion of his church. As an old Southern preacher used to say, never doubt in the dark what God told you in the light. Judah was in darkness. And it was a darkness of her own making. They wouldn't listen, so they couldn't believe, and they responded out of that unbelief. And the call went out, but their thoughts and feelings were drowning out the word of God. God was calling them to a new home, Zion, out of Babylon, into greater life with him. And instead of responding with obedience, they simply called out for help. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the arms of old. God, won't you just do something? I suspect we can identify. So how did God respond? Not with chastisement. Not with ridicule, 
with the servant. He sent the servant to do what they could not do. He sent the call for them and for us. It is finished. Are you listening? Do you believe? How will you respond? We're God's people. We don't plug our ears and remain in Babylon. We get moving and respond to him in faith. We purify ourselves, as the text says, living in the holy way he set before us. We lift up our voices and sing for joy, even in a world that is still shrouded in darkness. And we publish peace, bringing the good news of salvation to everyone who will listen in our lives individually and in our life corporately as a church. Our God reigns and saves and keeps his promises and helps us. That's his call. What's your response?